This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are no nations. There are no peoples. There is only one holistic system of systems. One vast and immane, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars. And you have meddled with the primal forces of nature. And you will atone. Everybody knows that the days are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed Everybody knows the war is over Everybody knows the good guys lost Everybody knows the fight was fixed The poor stay poor, the rich get rich That's how it goes Everybody knows. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Everybody knows that the day Happy Sunday as we get ready to unfurl the program for August, or April. Don't want to rush it. April the 11th. My gosh, the weather's been so warm. It seems like August. What a glorious day. Most of it's spent at the park with the little guys, uh, with their uh, buckets and shovels, enjoying the sand and the slide and the swings. Uh, anyway, we have a very uh, serious, intense uh, program for you, and it'll probably run the, almost the duration, certainly the, 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 uh, the first 90 minutes. If we have time, uh, we may do some uh, open lines towards the latter half of the program, but let's get right to it. We're going to launch into a, a ground-level investigation into the war on drugs, why we're losing and what to do next. Or I should say we're going to talk about a film that uh, really launched a ground-level investigation. 35 years after President Nixon started the war on drugs, there are over one million non-violent drug offenders living behind bars in the United States. The war on drugs has become the longest and most costly war in American history. The question has become, how much more can that country endure? Inspired by the death of four family members from legal drugs, our guest tonight, Texas filmmaker Kevin Booth, sets out to discover why the drug war has become such a big failure. Three and a half years in the making, the film follows gang members, former DEA agents, CIA officers, narcotics officers, judges, politicians, prisoners, and celebrities. Most notably, the film befriends Freeway Ricky Ross, the man many accuse of starting the crack epidemic, who after being arrested discovered that his cocaine source had been working for the CIA. American Drug War shows how money, power, and greed have corrupted not just drug pushers and dope fiends, but an entire government. More importantly, it shows what can be done about it. 
Kevin Booth is uh, with us, and uh, we're happy to have him here on The Conspiracy Show, AM 740. Kevin, how are you? Doing good. Doing good. Nice to be on the radio in Canada. And we should uh, point out that uh, two of your films, the aforementioned American Drug War and uh, another one of your films, How Weed Won the West, are going to be uh, uh, premiered on Tuesday, April the 20th at the Review Cinema here in Toronto, 400 Ronces Vale, and uh, this is uh, in association with Conspiracy Culture, our friends down at uh, 1696 Queen Street uh, West, and uh, iWeekly Magazine and High Times. And uh, let me see, American Drug War begins the evening at 7 p.m., and How We'd Won the West at 9.30 p.m., and uh, tickets uh, can be purchased through Conspiracy Culture for $7 and at the door uh, for 10 bucks. Again, that is Tuesday, April the 20th, American Drug War, which we'll be talking about tonight, How Weed Won the West, a double feature, 7 and 9.30 at the Review Cinema, and uh, two very important uh, eye-opening uh, uh, films. Okay, Kevin, let, let's uh, first offer the, uh, I guess, the caveat that this is not... Uh, uh, lest people be, um, you know, misguided here. This is not a uh, pro-drug documentary, correct? No, not at all. I mean, I would say it's a anti-drug war documentary. You know, I mean, I think uh, maybe some people might watch the new film, How We'd Won the West, and I've been accused of making it more of a pro-marijuana film, How We'd Won the West, but, it, you know, I think... um, American Drug War, in my opinion, is a little bit uh, less biased, a little bit more hardcore, where How We'd Won the West is a little bit more playful. Um, but, it, you know, but we're talking about marijuana, of course. And, and while we're on this subject, I just wanted to give a quick shout-out to uh, Patrick at Conspiracy Culture, who, um, without him, I wouldn't be on your show, I don't believe, and, and really appreciate him setting up this thing and and you know the significance of April 20 is that it's 420 which as you know has become this global day of uh it's like the the marijuana number I don't know there's a lot of different rumors how the number 420 got its start uh some people say it was some guys that used to smoke pot after school here in the valley I'm in Los Angeles right now and they would uh meet after school every day at 420 and smoke marijuana and all of a sudden this 420 thing stuck and now it's become this global Significance and the cool thing about 420 is that we have uh, screenings going on not only in Toronto but we've got we're at Paramount Studios here in Los Angeles and we're going to be in uh, right now we're in over 40 cities simultaneous on 420. Um, so everybody check check the listings. You can go to sacredcow.com or howweedwonthewest.com and check. Um, check for a theater near you on that one. All right. Uh, Kevin Booth is with us, and uh, the film is American Drug War, The Last White Hope. Uh, an intensely personal uh, project for you, as you, uh, as is mentioned in the publicity material, you lost four family members, I believe. Uh, well, it's from... one, three family members and a best friend. My, my closest friend was a comedian by the name of Bill Hicks. Sure, we're familiar who, uh, with Bill. died of pancreatic cancer, and, you know, I mean, uh, the, we could sit here and debate that I'm sure he was uh, predispositioned for cancer, but he also smoked cigarettes like a maniac. 
and almost everybody that I know that is, is dead now either smoke or drank. And, uh, you know, Bill abused alcohol and cigarettes very, very heartily for many, many years and, and then died very young. And not long after that, my brother, who was schizophrenic, who was nine years older than me, but he was um, in his mid-40s at the time, suffered a seizure while taking, and, and this was from court-ordered pharmaceutical medication that he was taking the prescribed doses. He wasn't abusing it. He wasn't using it recreationally. And it gave him a seizure, and that killed him. And then my mother and uh, father both died from alcohol-related illness. And, uh, the, and the the one of the the, the points that's made uh, in the film is that, uh, and in fact, I think Bill Hicks uh, made this point. We'll probably hear the clip later in one of his stand-up uh, routines. Uh, that uh, alcohol and tobacco, t- nicotine, uh, two legal drugs, have killed something like a. Um, a hundred times more people than uh, cocaine and heroin combined. Right. I mean, it's. I think the the numbers are something like. Um, I think there's about four hundred and fifty to a half a million, four hundred fifty thousand to a half a million deaths related to tobacco in the United States per year, and for alcohol, there's somewhere around one hundred and fifty thousand from health. Problems and another fifty thousand to a hundred thousand from just accidents and other things related to alcohol. From all illegal drugs combined, it's about eleven thousand deaths per year, and out of that, marijuana is uh, zero. What's the um, the connection uh, with the the war on drugs? I guess and the and the Nixon administration. Why did it start with the Nixon administration in in your mind? Well, it, it didn't start with him, but I could definitely say he definitely knocked it up a notch. I mean, you know, the the war on drugs has been used dating all the way back to where the British uh, took down China using opium. Uh, you know, they they outlawed marijuana long, long ago to help control the Mexican migrant workers. Um, the opium war, though, is an example of, uh, you know, the, the establishment using war or uh, drugs uh, as a weapon, uh, sort of sort of the reverse of, I guess, today's uh, war on drugs, so correct? Well, but it was still, you know, a way to, to conquer and divide. Sure. Like, you know, you, you distribute, you, you allow this product to become widely distributed. Everybody becomes addicted, and then it becomes, and now it's out, now it's against the law, and it gives you the ability to arrest people, take their property, and basically turn them into your slaves and allows you to, you know, uh, basically, you know, conquer and divide, as they say. These, uh, uh, I guess you, they were uh, ideologues or they were, they were, they had the best of intentions, some of these people at the forefront of the drug war, did they not? I mean, they, they genuinely believed that drug was a cancer uh, that had to be yeah, dealt with. That, well, but I think it's, it's even become uh, more than just conspiracy at this point that, that Nixon you know, especially like went after people with marijuana, you know, for marijuana because, um, you know, he's looking outside his window during the Vietnam War and there's 100,000 protesters out there. Hmm, let's see, they all smoke pot. I've got an idea. Let's make marijuana schedule one and uh, we'll start throwing all these idiots in jail. That's uh, important, the the, the way that Nixon uh, sort of uh, scheduled uh, these drugs, listing them from you know the most deadly to the least, and how marijuana was mixed up there with uh, uh, PCP and some other pretty lethal 
uh, illicit drugs. We'll get into that on the other side with Kevin Booth, and the film is American Drug War. Don't go away. The war against drugs, which actually is a war against civil rights, don't ever be fooled again. If they cared about us, they get rid of the number one drug, which is cigarettes, kills more people than crack, coke, and heroin combined, times 100. Legal. Marijuana, a drug that kills no one. <laughs> and let's put it in a time frame. Ever. heavy-duty statistics there. Okay, we have no one ever. Hmm. Let's make that illegal. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Kevin Booth is with us. American Drug War, The Last White Hope. There's your buddy uh, Bill Hicks uh, coming back, uh, Kevin. Right. And I don't know if you've, if you've heard, but there is a great new documentary out called uh, American, the Bill Hicks story that these uh, two British filmmakers just spent probably almost five years working on this thing. And I believe it's going to be at the uh, Toronto Film Festival here in a couple of weeks. Excellent. Well, thank you for that uh, heads up. Uh, yeah. I, I always found, you know, Hicks and, and, and Carlin you know, at their best. I could sit there and watch them and it's not knee-slapping funny stuff. It's just truth slapping you in the face. It's, I mean, to me, it wasn't so much a stand-up routine. It was just, you know, enlightenment. Yeah, I think, you know, I think Bill was like a channeler. You know, he started off, he started off, uh, you know, uh, channeling Woody Allen and, and ended up channeling, you know, probably some alien spirit or something. I'm not sure who he was channeling towards the end, but he uh, was definitely in touch with some pretty powerful pretty powerful things, you know. Uh, again, back to uh, Nixon and declaring this uh, this war on drugs, and the fact that marijuana was right up near the top, along with, I believe it was, uh, was, uh, with, was it PCPs and, and cocaine? Well, you have to, the, the drug schedule is a pretty interesting thing, and you can, you could go to the, anybody listening to this right now, just go to the DEA's, um, just Google DEA, and you can take you to the DEA website, and you can look at it for yourself. The interesting thing is that Schedule One are drugs that have, um, first of all, they're harmful, addictive drugs with no medicinal value. And they have marijuana up in there with, uh, you know, PCP, LSD, um, all these things. In fact, cocaine um, and, and, and meth and drugs like that are even, like, sometimes down in, in schedule two there's different things i think sometimes crack is up in one cocaine is in two because you could still uh they, they use cocaine for uh dental surgery and eye surgery and you know heroin you know it's, a, it's kind of a tricky thing heroin might be in schedule one but all the other opiates leak over into schedule two you know schedule two would have oxycontin and all these things but the point is is that they put marijuana in a category that says no medicinal value. And meanwhile, you have literally millions and millions of people saying it's the best medicine in the world, and the government is just like, nope, sorry. You know, they're just like, just, just no, it's not, just, even though there's just, just endless research, endless people coming out. I mean, 
can you imagine? I mean, and, and at the same time, all these pharmaceutical companies are allowed to just like pump out just these X, Y, Z pills for just whatever. They've got all their all our children on. Uh, I don't know if you heard of this drug called Adderall. Yes. You heard of this one? Yes. It's kind of the it's like the the new drug that everybody's on now. Um, this stuff is uh, it's it's methamphetamine. It's it's in, I mean, this stuff would give you a heart attack. It's insane, and, and they're just giving it to all the kids. Oh, you can't focus. You need to take some. You need to take some meth, um, and that's and that's okay. But this herb, this flower, they're they're keeping it in Schedule One, and there's only one reason. And I think Alex Jones hits upon it really well in the new film called How We We Won the West, and that is even unlike cocaine and heroin, which are very centralized drugs, they can, cocaine can only be grown in very specific places. It, only, it can only be grown in a couple of countries in the whole world, and therefore our CIA um, can control the flow of it. They can use the proceeds. They can, they can make astronomical uh, profits from it, including the same, they can do the same thing with heroin and opium and uh, G ain't it a coinky dink that after 9/11 we took control of Afghanistan and now Afghanistan has become the number one producer of opium and supposedly the opium supply and the heroin supply pumping into the Western world now is just quadrupled off the chain and the reason that marijuana is such a threat to them is because it's the the most decentralized drug uh, on the face of the planet it can grow everywhere. It could grow on every single continent. It can grow in a bunch of different climates, and, and everybody can do it. And therefore, the government knows they'll never be able to control this thing. And once the cat is out of the bag, they're going to lose just crazy profits. Well, the other uh, interesting point that's made in the film, and I, I, I'm trying to remember whether it was uh, Jello Biafra or the uh, there's a civil rights uh, activist that's uh, featured prominently, uh, who, who talk about how you know a, a young person who sees marijuana in schedule 1 and they're a user and they they know for you know that it that it, it's not uh, uh habit forming and it doesn't have uh uh you know other than making you perhaps uh, uh, somewhat lazy and lethargic it it it, it doesn't have um, many uh you know detrimental uh, effects side effects uh but then if they look okay well if marijuana is schedule 1 and it's harmless uh, and PCP and LSD are also in Schedule One. I might as well try them too. So, just right, by I think, inference, I think the quote you're thinking about is that he says, um, "You know, gee, if the government's lying to me about marijuana, then you know, then they must be lying about everything else." Yes, exactly. And and um, and that's true because whether people like it or not, see, I mean, you know, one of the criticisms I will get will always be, "Well, I don't want my kids smoking marijuana. Stuff makes you stupid." Well, guess what? They already are. You know what I mean? You can't, they, they already are, you can't stop them, it didn't work. If you want, anybody who wants to smoke marijuana can smoke it, will smoke it, they can get it, it's everywhere. Um, guess what? You've already lost that little fight. All you can do now is to try to control the quality and control like how they get it and where they get it and who they get it from and all of these kind of things. And so, you know, it's a... It's, uh, it, it, it's just it's just crazy. So once again, yeah, exactly. And the other the other side of that too that goes along with what I'm saying is that if uh, as long as you keep marijuana in the black market, then your children 
are going to be having to get their marijuana from the same people who sell crystal meth and crack cocaine. And I guarantee those guys, they make way more profit off selling the crack and the crystal than they do off marijuana because marijuana is, is a harder drug for drug dealers to sell. It's big, it's smelly, um, it's harder to conceal than, than little tiny white powder. So, you know, it's still a more cost-effective, more um, profitable thing to be a, a coke dealer or a heroin dealer. And so when you get the same guy that's like selling the cocaine and the, and the marijuana to your school kids, uh, chances are he's going to try to get them to graduate on up. All right, we'll come back with Kevin Booth, American Drug War. On The Conspiracy Show, my name is Richard Serrett. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. the government to declare a war on drugs because the majority of Americans haven't known any better and they haven't really understood that all of this is a massive deception. It's a massive profit scheme. Curiosity or did the devil make you do it? Whatever the reason, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740. Or toll-free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. American Drug War, Kevin Booth is with us. Let's talk a little bit about uh, some of the motivation uh, for this uh, war on uh, drugs. Um, one of the, uh, the interesting things that, come out, uh, that, that comes out of this uh, film is a... Uh, a, a look, a close-up look at a, an organization. They used to be called Wackenhut, and now they're called uh, uh, Geo uh, International. They build prisons. These are privately run prisons, uh, jails, uh, holding stations for uh, 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 immigrants, etc. Uh, and uh, these places are filled to the rafters and uh, at probably th- between thirty and $50,000 uh, per year per prisoner for incarceration. Uh, tell us a little bit more. Well, yeah, that's yeah, definitely the private prison thing was one of the more startling revelations of the film. And you know, you're brought up to believe, or I was, anyways. I think most people are thinking that um, you know, incarcerating people costs money. You know, the government doesn't want to incarcerate you, but once you get inside of this thing, you realize that that's exactly what they want to do. They want to get you inside the system, and. Um, Right now, anybody in front of a computer listening, once again, go Google Geo Group, G-E-O uh, Group, and you'll see that this is a, a U.S.-based global. This isn't just something going on in the United States. I believe they have prisons now on seven continents. This is, you know, to be something that people should be frightened of. And, um, you know, it's like the more dangerous they, these, these uh, organizations become, sometimes I joke that the more generic the name becomes, you know, people could make fun of the, the name, you know, the name Wackenhut, when you think about it, Wackenhut, you know, you picture someone like locked in a hut being whacked, and it's, it's uh, you know, weird now they just change it to Geo Group, you know, just this super generic name. But these are, uh, you know, these are uh, publicly traded companies that uh, are controlled by their stockholders, and just like any corporation, uh, you know, the more business, the, the higher the stock, and that's all that's going to drive it. And the, so these people's only motivation, 
is to basically fill beds because filling beds is the only way to uh, drive the stock value up, to, to earn higher profits. And people will be surprised to find out some who some of the stockholders are on these things, you know, some people that you maybe didn't think were such bad people. So it's uh, um, And one of the things, too, I found out in the film that's interesting is that you know, during the Reagan administration in 87, right around the same exact period, when Reagan uh, came up with these new crack laws and making it, making the sentencing parameters almost 100 times worse than uh, powdered cocaine, which is funny because crack, because powder cocaine is actually uh, quite a bit stronger than crack. You make, you make crack from powder cocaine, and crack is actually... Uh, only about 20% cocaine, and yet people can get, uh, you know, 100 times worse sentencing by possessing crack. And it's just interesting to me that I found out that both of these things happen right around the same time. And, you know, you have to say there's definitely crack is was a black man's drug, and, um, you know, that this was definitely, definitely had a, uh, you know, a racist uh agenda behind it. Well, it, it, yes, it, it makes perfect sense, especially, uh, and I, I think it was under Clinton when when a lot of these uh, uh, private prisons uh, were built, and uh, you have uh, conviction rates now uh, with a lot of these uh, drug sentences of nearing 100%, and that makes perfect sense because if you're targeting a crack cocaine users because it's cheap and readily available, and again, unfortunately, uh, as we'll discover, I mean, this is a drug that has been targeted towards uh, uh, low-income blacks and Hispanics. And uh, who are they going to get to defend themselves? Public defenders. Uh, and so it's more likely that you're going to get a conviction uh, with, with those, and you're going to be able to fill these private uh, uh, prisons. And as you point out, these are publicly traded companies, so the more prisoners they have, the higher their profits are. Uh, and as Michael Rupert, uh, former L.A. narcotics officer, points out, if this isn't a, a, a signal or a sign of an incredibly sick society, I don't know what is. Yeah, it's definitely sad. And, and, and on top of that, though, in the film, you know, we go into uh, Tommy Chung being arrested. And as he found out, even though he was a rich celebrity, uh, he, they, they nailed him, too, and found out that when, when the feds are after you, that the, the feds have almost 100% conviction rate. And that basically, if you try to fight a federal conviction, they're just gonna like quadruple your time, and you're gonna lose anyway, even if you do spend a hundred thousand dollars on your lawyer, because as you find out, the lawyers are working for the courts. Uh, I mean, on the surface, the, the the privately run prison seems like a good idea. Uh, even the former governor of of, of New Mexico, who's uh, featured in the documentary, who is for you know. Uh, decriminalization and in introducing more sort of harm reduction strategies is in favor of, of private prisons because they're they're cheaper uh, but I'm thinking that you know as as uh, as taxpayers as citizens um, maybe we need to be cognizant of the high cost of of incarcerating someone and that should be a deterrent that we're if we have to pay so much uh, if if it's if it's difficult and expensive to put someone behind bars that's going to make us stop and think and say no wait, let's reserve those spots for the most violent people yeah and I, and I left I put that quote in there with Gary Johnson and Gary Johnson's an amazing person and right now he's really uh, pulling out in the forefront of the uh, of the final battle to end marijuana pro prohibition um, is like a big star in the movement right now. He's, he's becoming quite famous in the movement. And, but I put that in there 
not to show that he was like a bad guy or that he didn't get it, but just to show that it's not so black and white. You know what I mean? It's there. There's just so much gray area out here. That's not just good and evil versus, you know, it, it, it's like a big complicated web that they've woven. And, uh, you know, so yeah, I mean, private prisons are good on, on, on this whole reason for, uh, you know, saving the tax, the tax, uh, um, payers, all this money and maybe hopefully getting like a better prison or more more prison for your dollar but it but it just opens up this whole other horrible thing and it just goes to show that you know there's just i think at the end of the day when they look back and they write the history books about this generation that people are going to come to realize you know that capitalism you know was like a good idea but there there comes this limit to where there are certain things that should not be profitable that are that are just not going to be good for society, and you know I would argue that healthcare is one, and 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 um, you know the the justice system is another. The justice system should not be a profitable uh, industry. The uh, the other point that Tommy Chong uh, uh, mentions, and he now is he out of prison now, or is he still serving in? Uh... Yeah, he, he he was only in well, he was in a federal prison for nine months, and I want people to know that it was not it was not for marijuana. They they put him in prison because his son was selling bongs on the internet and using his father's face to market them, and that's the all that's all it was. And basically, um, they they were trying to like bust him they were trying to like to like do a sting operation it wasn't working basically there is a county in excuse me in Pennsylvania where it's against the law to ship in drug paraphernalia from out of state or whatever there's all these complicated laws on the book that they create to catch people and they kept in the, the DEA set up a phony head shop and they kept calling Chong Glass out here on the west coast ordering, you know, great big, you know, it was like a $10,000 order or something like that, a really lucrative order. And the people, you know, it was a big company, a multi-million dollar company, had a lot of people answering the phones, but they kept saying, no, we're not allowed to ship there. Well, they kept ordering, they kept ordering, and they would place the order, the order would get on the books, and someone would go, wait, no, we're not allowed to ship to this place. So the DEA actually planted uh, uh, an employee inside of the company who was able to work his way into being having the job of filling orders and he filled the order and so and and then and then, and then the next thing you know it they're busting down the Chong's door and uh raiding them you know in the middle of the night with guns in their faces and you know tearing apart the business and basically gave Tommy the option of um either your son goes to prison or you do so he fell on the sword mhm he well, what, what father wouldn't do that for their son? Now, sure. the other thing that he points out is, is that the, uh, in these privately run prisons, inmates are uh, pressed into essentially, it's, well, there's, not, it's, there's no other way of describing it. It's slave labor. They're forced to work. And uh, again, for profit, this, this goes to the bottom line of the, of the company. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, uh, it, it's just crazy to think that, you know, it's going to get to the point, you know, when, when you're talking to the bank about your mortgage or your credit cards, you know, sometimes you're going to be talking to, like, some guy sitting inside of a prison cell. I mean, there's all kinds of jobs these people are doing. It's, it's, it's crazy. Freeway Ricky Ross uh, may not be uh, a familiar name with um, uh, some of my listeners, uh, but here's a, uh, a fellow that was the, um, he's called the Walmart of crack. 
Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, uh, Freeway Ricky Ross, uh, uh, what, he, uh, what he did, why he did it, and then, I guess, what he discovered. Well, Ricky was just a young brother out here on the West Coast. Actually, he had grown up in Texas, and his father died, and his mother moved out here because they had family, and they were poor. They lived in the ghetto, and he was uh, aspiring to be a professional tennis player, but they were broke, and he ended up becoming a, just a you know a common car thief, uh, just kind of like a cheap hustler. And one day they discovered, uh, or, or I think somebody that was involved with tennis with him, showed him that, look, if you can buy $100 worth of cocaine, cook it into crack, turn around, sell it for 1000 bucks. And Ricky was like, whoa, you know, that sounds like that's for me. Ricky never touched the drug, and before you knew it, uh, he was practically, like, buying every bit of cocaine that this guy that he was working with could put his hands on to the point where the guy was like, ah, i got to introduce you to my connection. Well, Ricky just had just that, you know, really good common business sense and he uh, kind of went up the ladder, and before you know it, he met a guy by the name of Danilo Blandone who hooked him up to just a nonstop pipeline of cocaine that he was able to get on consignment. And before you know it, Ricky is cooking something like 100 pounds of cocaine into crack every single day. Two or three million dollars a week, and sometimes in a day he's pulling in. Yeah, exactly. And all this money was being funneled to uh, help the war in uh, Nicaragua. In other words, you know, his, the, his connection was the CIA. His, the cocaine was coming into the country from Nicaragua via the, uh, the CIA. Correct. I mean, the guy, you know, the, the guy was a CIA asset, a CIA operative, you know, helping to finance the black op. I mean, as the story goes, and, and there's even pictures of Ronald Reagan standing next to this guy that Ricky was work, working with. I mean, and, and at this point, you can actually even read about this on the government's own websites. I mean, if you think it's this crazy conspiracy theory, um, you know, even the government admits at this point that this happened. Even the head of the DEA admits that this happened. And um, it, it kind of like, the, as the story goes, you know, uh, Congress would not, uh, you know, allow the, the financing for, you know, the Iran-Contra and, and all the things that Reagan was trying to do. And I think they had like $19 million to work with. And so they did what, what any street, you know, what a lot of street dealers would do or anybody was, hey, you know what, we can use cocaine to um, take our $19 million and turn it into hundreds of million. And that's just what they did. In, uh, in other words, we dial back uh, to the early 80s, and uh, people will, re- will remember the Iran-Contra hearings and Oliver North uh, uh, testifying before Congress. The, uh, again, there was um, uh, sort of an embargo against dealing with Iran because of the Iran hostage uh, thing. So, and there was also, uh, they were not able to, uh, Reagan wanted desperately to fund this counter-insurgents group in, in Nicaragua to fight the Sandinistas. The, the, the this insurgency group were called the Contras, it was, uh, uh, but they, they had no way of funding them. So they gave, illegally, they gave weapons to Iran for money. And then, as you say, in order to sort of, as a multiplier effect, you take that money, it's, it's only $19 million, so you, you buy cocaine, you sell it on the streets, and you, you know, quadruple your money. And then that's how they seeded the Contras. And yep. one of the people that ended up being the dealers on the streets in, in L.A. was Ricky Ross. Now, people might be saying, well, why should we believe 
a uh, a crack dealer, but it wasn't Freeway <laughs> Ricky Ross who discovered this, really, right. was Ricky, it? Ricky, yeah, the, Ricky didn't even know that this. Basically, all Ricky knew was that he could do no wrong, meaning that he just never got caught. Ricky thought he was just, you know, untouchable, which he was until they wanted him touched, and so. You know, if, if there was going to be a bus, which there usually wouldn't because of all the protection that he had that he didn't even know about at the time, he would be tipped off, you know, like, uh, hey, go make sure they're going to come to this thing. I mean, Ricky had, like, all these different cook houses and, and money-counting houses. He had houses, you know, apartment buildings. He owned properties, like, all over South Central and had different things. He was very smart how he organized the whole thing, you know, into a huge distribution network and basically using – you know, street gangs to distribute because the street gangs were already like a perfect distribution network that were already in place. And and unlike all the, the predecessors, you know, and, and even though he grew up as a crip, you know, he was on the blue team, as they say out here, uh, he realized that, um, you know, he was a businessman and that he, he sold to whoever wanted to buy it. So he sold to the Bloods, the Crips, the, the Mexicans, whoever, you know, and he basically, you know, Sold so cheap that it wasn't even like anybody could even compete with him. Even his competition would start buying from him. So it didn't. He didn't really gain any enemies on that kind of thing because it, you know you couldn't even compete at the kind of prices that he was able to uh, move the product through. And it wasn't until Ricky went to jail. And it's a long, complicated story. I mean, he went to jail one time and then got out and then got busted and went back in. But it wasn't until he got busted the second time that there was an investigative journalist by the name of Gary Webb. So in who, uh, San Jose Mercury News. Yeah, and he did, a, he did a series of stories called Dark Alliance, and he also wrote a book called Dark Alliance. And uh, he did a, an incredible job of connecting all the dots, and he went and saw Ricky in jail. And, um, you know, the story goes that Ricky read this thing for the very first time, saying that, you know, what he did and realized that, this guy, Danilo Blandone, who was like a father to him, was a, a CIA, um, you know, was working with the CIA. And also uh, an expat Nicaraguan, obviously, who wanted the Contras funded. Yeah, no, that part he knew. Ah, okay. You know, I mean, he, he knew, I mean, that, that he had left his country in exile because of the war and that he was, you know, up there, uh, you know, up there trying to make money in the States by selling drugs to basically finance the war to get his country back. The other uh, interesting uh, uh, individual interviewed in American Drug War is this uh, DEA uh, official who's down in Nicaragua uh, at the time that the uh, the Contras are uh, fighting the Sandinistas and doing an investigation. Uh, Celerino Castillo, I believe it is, and he Correct. and yeah, he meets and, and, George Bush and 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 attempts to tell him that that he what he's uncovered, and, and what was that. Right. I mean, yeah, and he, he even had photographs. They they were allowed, you know, he uh, was going around with a camera, and not a lot of the, you know, they were doing all this, like, crazy things, a lot of violence. Um, and he, for some reason, had the, the foresight to, like, carry a camera around. He started taking pictures of everything, and he was suddenly taking pictures of giant military transport planes being filled with cocaine. And, um, you know, and, and realized that this was all going on, and, and he was at some sort of a party, some, you know, one of just some embassy party or something like that, and he actually got to meet George Bush in person, George Bush Sr., of course, and he went up to him, and, you know, he was introduced as, you know, this uh, 
you know, DEA agent that's down here fighting the war on drugs, and he comes up to him and he goes, you know, sir, I need to tell you that, you know, what's going on here and that I've got proof that, you know, these, these people down here are, are moving cocaine. And he said Bush just you know, smiled and shook his hand and walked away. And, and wasn't the, the – uh, you, you mentioned these um, military uh, uh, cargo planes flying in the co- coke, and, and these were U.S. military uh, planes. Were they not flying them into an airport in Arkansas, which was uh, then governed by a future president? Yeah, that's, that's another story. I, you know, I, I didn't get into that in the American drug war because I wasn't able to find any firsthand people. And one of the guys that wrote about that, I guess, died, and the other one I couldn't get a hold of. But that was – a. And there's already a film about it. It's called, but you could look that up. It's called Mina, Arkansas. And um, there's some films you can watch about that. Are pretty interesting. But yes, that was that was one of many places. But that was definitely a a, a well documented uh, landing spot for all the cocaine to come through. Or one of one of the the major points. Another thing I like to say too is that the DEA agent Celerino Castillo is currently behind bars right now. Uh, a couple days after American Drug War premiered on Showtime Network here in the States, uh, he was arrested, and they had a gun to the back of his head, and the guy was like, then the guy that had a gun to the back of his head said, I saw you on TV last night, and they all started laughing, and he's considered to be a traitor amongst the, you know, the DEA, and they got him on, um, on a charge of selling guns at gun shows. Selling guns at gun shows. Go figure. Yep. All right. Well, he's on somebody's enemies list for sure. All right. We'll come back and pick it up on the other side with Kevin Booth. American Drug War. Stay with us. Peering into the shadows where the truth often hides. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. If you're sure your phone isn't tapped, call now, 416-360-0740, or toll-free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. Kevin Booth is with us, and the uh, the, the film is American Drug War, The Last White Hope. It's quite a, uh, an eye-opener, and... Uh, American Drug War, together with another Kevin Booth film, How Weed Won the West, will be part of a double feature at uh, the Review Cinema that's on uh, Roncesvalles Avenue here in Toronto, 400 Roncesvalles Avenue, and that is on April the 20th. That's Tuesday, April the 20th, 7 p.m., and then uh, 9.30 p.m. for the second uh, part of the feature. You can buy tickets at the door. Uh, for $10, or you can uh, order them through Conspiracy Culture, conspiracyculture.com, for 7 bucks. Now, uh, before I get to the phones, I just want to ask you uh, about Gary Webb, who, uh, again, was writing this investigative uh, series on how the CIA was smuggling cocaine into the United States, funneling it to uh, dealers who were then turning it into cheap crack cocaine. Now, was Gary Webb, was he not uh, fired from San, the San Jose Mercury News, if memory serves? For, uh, and, and there was yeah, some suggestion for that. story. I mean, he, you know, some people say he had a little bit of a nervous breakdown, and, and they, you know, uh, Mercury News caught a lot of flack for that, I think, which, you know, then caused him to want to go out and write the book. And, I, you know, I recommend strongly to reading the book. It's a fascinating book. You know, even if you're not really interested in this topic, it's just a really well-written, fascinating read, Dark Alliance, for sure. 
and um, and that's how I you know I believe they sold it. You know, they really they really sold this thing as that he, he was depressed. He you know was having a breakdown. He thought everyone was out to get him, and then all of a sudden he killed himself by shooting himself multiple times in the head with a shotgun, which. Um, he was suicided, he in other words. I tried doing that, but mm-hmm. I don't know how easy that is to shoot yourself over and over again in the head with a shotgun. Yeah, we've, we've sort of seen that uh, um, play out before where someone has been suicided. Uh, either they've, yeah, they've shot themselves in the head with a shotgun several times, which, as you say, is impossible, or they've, been, uh, they've thrown themselves off a bridge. Uh, we've seen this movie before, and we know how it ends. Let's go to the phones and uh, say hello to Michael in the beaches here in Toronto. Good evening, Michael. Yes, uh, good evening, Richard and Kevin. Uh, Much of this conversation tonight reminds me of uh, our Canadian Prime Minister, Stephen Harper, a few weeks ago, you know, asked if he was going to legalize or decriminalize pot. And, of course, he said he has no intention of doing that. But then he made the following comment after that, that if you buy pot, uh, pot uh, you're not buying from your neighbor, but you're buying from international terrorists and criminals and all that. I think that is the point, that if uh, the, the stuff is legalized, uh, and that's, uh, you know, just being a libertarian now, uh, then you will buy it from the proper people because the... Uh, the criminals won't be making the money anymore. Well, it's, it's funny that you brought that up because that whole that whole bit was definitely put onto us after 9/11, big time, and that was one of the things that got me, you know, so stoked up to want to make this film. You know, I had seen a movie called Grass done by Ron Mann. I recommend seeing great movie uh, narrated by Woody Harrelson. And it wasn't long after 9/11. I think it was a, during Super Bowl Sunday. And this brand new ad ad campaign came on that was all about, you know, if you buy marijuana, you're funding terrorism. And it was at that point where I was kind of like, okay, that's enough. You know what I mean? I've got to do something. This is just too ridiculous. And so the idea that when you buy marijuana, you're funding terrorism is, is pretty ridiculous, especially when we're talking about marijuana. Now, that said, I mean, I do agree, though, about the whole black market thing. Um, you know, you're going to take it out of the black market. You're going to have controls over it. You know, the new film called How We'd Won the West is a lot about what's going on here in Los Angeles. Here in Los Angeles, we have over a 1,000 dispensaries where anybody can go get a license from a doctor, or it's really just like a a card you get from a doctor, and you can go to any one of these 1,000 dispensaries and buy marijuana, and it's really... We have medical marijuana up here anyway. Right, but it, how does it work, though? It's different how it's dispensed, right? Well, I don't know very much about it, except that, it, you know, for glaucoma and stuff like that, I guess you get advice from here. Well, uh, it's supposed to be doctor. it's supposed sure. to be grown by a government uh, a government approved uh, uh, farm, if you will, and uh, supposedly it's very low grade. Uh, you have to have a special <laughs> yeah. certificate from a doctor. Uh, meanwhile, there is sort of there are these uh, what they call compassion clubs that are springing up. In fact, one was just raided in Toronto uh, last week, uh, where they're uh, you know dispensing their own uh, um, you know medically um, or medical marijuana. But uh, 
I guess because you know the government isn't in on that and they don't have the checks and balances in place and so forth. They're, they're, sometimes they turn a blind eye in places like Vancouver, but uh, in other and places... It doesn't even do anything for the no. people or Mike, anything. Michael, thank you for the call. Well, speaking of Canada, Kevin, let me get a, a, a quick comment from you on uh, on Rick Emery out in, in Vancouver and the status of that situation. Here's a guy that was... Uh, uh, oh, Mark, Mark Emery. Uh, Mark Emery, my apologies. Uh, Mark right. Emery. Uh, he's sort of the... I don't want to make a comparison between him and Freeway Ricky Ross because uh, obviously, you know, crack cocaine and marijuana are two different things. But he's sort of, you know, he's sort of ro- has rose to that sort of level of status, but in the marijuana arena. But essentially was, as I understand it, was selling marijuana seeds, uh, you know, by mail order. But here he is up in Vancouver. Uh, and yet the, the long tentacles of the, uh, the CIA or the FBI reach up into Canada, get him extradited, where he's basically uh, facing a life sentence for selling marijuana seeds. No, it's, it's unbelievable. And if you, you know, you can Google marijuana seeds and find a million places that sell it. In fact, I'm working with a guy. We've got the thing called the THC Exposé coming up in, in Los Angeles. It comes right after 420. I'm working with a guy named Brett Bogue who has a company called Apothecary. And, um, you know, they, they sell genetics as well. But it's, uh, you know, I, I think Mark, I think, put a lot of money back into trying to end the drug war, and they didn't like that. And, you know, 60 Minutes did a big story about him, and it kind of came off as, uh, you know, he was on the other side of the border kind of thumbing his nose at the, at the DEA, and I know they didn't like that. And so I think anytime someone becomes a, you know, kind of like this this hero or this icon uh, against the movement, just like Tommy Chong did, uh, they'll usually come after him, and and uh, they came after him with a vengeance. And I think it's uh, it was a really sad day when when the Canadian government allowed the Americans to do that. It was horrible. It was un- it's almost unprecedented. I mean, this is to yeah. me this is to, the drug uh, question aside. This is a sovereignty issue. I mean, people may not be aware, but the FBI have branch offices operating in Canada. That's that's a sovereignty issue. Yeah, that's a freaking nightmare. Where do you guys need to go? Mexico? I mean, jeez. <laughs> well, we're all going to become one, uh, uh, not to the distant yeah, future. Mexico won't. Yeah, right. It's just going to be the North American Union, correct? And, that's right. Uh, you'll have to. I don't know where you're going to have to go. All right, uh, Dan, do we owe a break to the good people? All right, let's uh, take care of that right now. Back on the other side with uh, Kevin Booth. Get on board. Questions and comments. 416-360-0740. 416-360-0740. Toll free from out of town from Thunder Bay to the Carolinas and Maine to Minnesota. one 740 doesn't matter if you're uh, pro or con drugs. That's not really what this is about. In part, it's a civil liberties issue. But the other question here is, why do we have a war on drugs, and how are the drugs getting into the country? Remember the movie Boys in the Hood? The point made there is, you know, the gangs, they're not flying the cocaine in from South America. They don't have the the labs. How is it getting in? The answer seems to be, well, as Gary Webb pointed out, it's the CIA. This is the new opium war. Back with more. Stay with us. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. We deal in illusions, man. None of it is true. But you people sit there day after day, night after night, all ages, colors, creeds. 
We're all you know. You're beginning to believe the illusions we're spinning here. You're beginning to think that the tube is reality and that your own lives are unreal. You do whatever the tube tells you. You dress like the tube. You ate like the tube. You raise your children like the tube. You even think like the tube. This is mass madness, you maniacs. In God's name, you people are the real thing. We are the illusion. So turn off your television sets. Turn them off now. Turn them off right now. Turn them off and leave them off. Turn them off right in the middle of the sentence I'm speaking to you now. Turn them off. Brainwashed in our childhood. Brainwashed by the school. Brainwashed by our teachers. And brainwashed by all the rules. Brainwashed by our leaders. By our kings and queens. Brainwashed in the open and brainwashed behind the scenes. Live from Toronto, Canada. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. My website, richardserrett.com, S-Y-R-E-T-T-S, as in Simon, Y-R-E-T-T, richardserrett.com. That's your gateway uh, to The Conspiracy Show. You'll find all the information you need there about the show, what's coming up next. Next week, for example, we'll talk about corruption and conspiracies in the professional sports world. And uh, there's also a secret documents page and a book and club, a book and DVD club uh, page. Also, a past show audio archive where you can download and listen to previous uh, shows. All right, uh, Kevin Booth is with us. American Drug War, part of a double bill a feature that's. Uh, premiering on uh, Tuesday, April the 20th at the Review Cinema here in Toronto, 400 Roncesvalles Avenue. And uh, you can buy tickets at the door at 7 p.m. The uh, first film begins at $10 at the door or $7 by ordering through conspiracyculture.com. Before we get back to the phones, uh, Kevin, uh, let's uh, uh, sort of demonstrate the the ineffectiveness of this 35-year and counting uh, a drug war in America. How much is spent now annually uh, on drug enforcement and, and et cetera? And uh, what sort of a dent, if any, has it made in the uh, in the drug scourge? Well, I don't. <clears throat> I'd be lying if I if I told you I knew those exact numbers. I mean, some people say it's into the billions and billions, you know, and uh, it's really just a way. For me, I think I think it's a way for a lot of people just to make a living or to, to and to make money. Um, I think one of the interesting examples in the film that we haven't talked about yet is the Tulia story, where they came in and rounded up 10% of the uh, the town's black people and locked them in jail. The one guy was in jail for six months before he even got to talk to a lawyer. Was in jail for four years after that before he got out. They convicted him on these drug charges, but. The, the point that I'm getting at is that it the the reason that it happened and the reason that it keeps happening like this is that these people have to meet their quotas, just like here in the States. I don't know how it works in Canada, but, you know, the police departments will be told, you know, you've got to give out X amount of speeding tickets. Um, you know, you, they have all these quotas they have to get out. And if these, if these narcotics task force that they've created – don't produce enough arrests, then they're not going to be around. They're not going to get their budgets. They're not going to get their funding. Tula's an old uh, oil town, and there's no more oil there, so the only business in town is this private prison from Geotech, correct? Or Geogroup. Right, yeah. That was, yeah. yeah, I've I've got some hell for that one, too. (laughs) I've gotten some uh, 
some angry emails from uh, the citizens of Taft. I'll bet. <laughs> I'll bet. <laughs> you know, what can you say? <laughs> I hope you've hired someone to start your car in the morning, and I, I don't mean that in a flippant manner. My word. <laughs> If I lived in Taft, I wouldn't be happy either. No. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. No, I live up in the Hollywood Hills. But but less people think that this is sort of uh, some retrograde form of uh, of you know uh, deep South justice, a holdover from the fifties. Uh, you make the point that no, this is far from that. This is the new cutting edge of the uh, uh, jurisprudence in the United States. Yeah, I mean, this is what they're doing, and right now they they have shifted it over. I mean, I I set out to do a sequel to American Drug War, and ended up doing how we'd won the West because right now the marijuana debate and the medical marijuana debate and the legalization is really at the fro- forefront of this whole deal. And um, as a judge in American Drug War says, and it's a very important statistic: eighty-five percent of all illegal drug users only smoke marijuana. And I'll think about that only smoke marijuana 85 percent of all the illegal drug users that we're you know we're talking about so you know take those statistics you know only eleven thousand people die a year not that you know that's belittling it and you'll get the critics will go well two wrongs don't make it right it's just you know that's that's the kind of logic they'll argue with you but 85 percent only smoke marijuana so if you take marijuana out of this equation the whole thing is going to come crumbling down and that's why marijuana is so important because it is a drug that so many people use and do, and, and, and the critics will try to argue like, well, you know, once they legalize that, then they're going to want to legalize crystal meth and da-da-da and da-da-da. And I, I like to argue that by saying, um, you know, how many, when's the, when's the last time you saw a bunch of kids marching in the street because, you know, for crystal meth? You know, when's the last time you saw, you know, a PCP Freedom Festival or, you know, or, you know, you're just never going to see it. You know, marijuana is its own separate thing, and people out there need to stop being so afraid of it and, and realize that it's the, the government categorized it with these other horrible things, and it's a trick, and it's a trick on you. And it has nothing to do with whether it's good for you or bad for you or whether you should do it or whether you shouldn't do it. Of course, kids shouldn't do it, but that's, that's not the point. You know, you're not going to stop your children from trying it. Well, it might be easier to stop the children from trying it, if uh, Kevin, if it wasn't getting all this wonderful free advertising courtesy of the mainstream news. Oh, there's a new epidemic. It's crack cocaine. It's cheap, and you get a terrific high, and it's cheap. Did we mention it's cheap and that it's readily available? Don't do it, but it's cheap, and it's readily available. No, of course. I mean, and the media makes it all cool, and that's why, you know, in the film we go to Amsterdam, and, and it's just interesting to note that in countries where... They've backed off of these laws, and they're they're exploring what you know we call harm reduction strategies. The idea of decriminalization, maybe not so much legalization, but decriminalization. Something doesn't necessarily have to be legal uh, to say that you don't maybe have to go to jail for ten years if you get caught with it. You know, there's a difference between between you can go to Seven Eleven and buy crystal meth versus someone needs to go and be locked on a chain gang because they get caught with a little baggie of it. You know, there's like a big, a huge, you know, chasm between those two things, and yet that's the reality of it. All right, let's go to the phones. Marie is in Etobicoke tonight. Uh, well, I should say good morning. Welcome to AM740 and The Conspiracy Show, Marie. Hi, Richard. Hi. Um, I'd first of all, I'd like to point out that uh, there is no protection for whistleblowers like me. 
And when you have something on the government involving uh, any type of drug dealing, they come down around you and your whole family and everything you do with a big hammer, and you can't go to the police because the police don't want to hear about it. Uh, I've been told they don't have time. It's international. I've gone to the uh, RCMP. Uh, I get the same thing, and then I even got a, a veiled threat by the RCMP. And uh, it all started when I tape-recorded a guy who was a rat talking about... Um, uh, working for the Liberals. And okay, the no names, please, Marie, no names. I didn't mention any. No, I know, oh, I'm just I, I'm cautioning was, you. Yeah. Okay, we're well, talking about the two major political parties in this country involved in drug trafficking with Washington, D.C. And after that, my family was torn apart. I was made homeless and penniless. Uh, and... Uh, after that, they tried to kill me. They surrounded me with all kinds of people in a sixplex. Uh, then I knew what was happening. Um, they tried to get my sister-in-law to, fr- uh, to frame me. Um, when I uh, had a six-hour standoff with the police, they put me in the hospital for five hours, uh, sorry, for five weeks. Then they tried to take all my apartment's belongings and wouldn't even let me out of the hospital to appear in court. So I find, I got a friend to go. So they, were, they weren't able to take all my possessions. Uh, before that ha- happened, I was involved in a phony car accident, a setup car accident. Uh, one police testif- uh, the testified perjured himself. That was uh, it's obvious. If you read the testimony of both police, they both say something different. That case was sent to the appellant court. The appellant court judge threw it out, told the insurance company to retry this case. Okay, Marie, let me let me stop you there because it's it's very uh, you know obviously a, a, a complicated and painful thing. But this is a cautionary tale, obviously, uh, uh, Kevin Booth, and you mentioned. Uh, Celerino Castillo, a former DEA age, a, a former DEA officer, uh, who was also trying to blow the whistle and, t- and tried to tell George Bush what was going on in terms of the U.S. Uh, trafficking in, in in cocaine, and uh, and after your documentary was screened on Showtime, he was arrested and and, and jailed. Uh, are there any other? Uh, People We've that, been tortured. We, right, let me, Maria. Let me just, uh, Marie. Let me thank you for the call and pass it over to, to Kevin. Uh, any other one? Any other people featured well, you know, in your I mean, document? It's, it's a, you know, I like to talk about Alex Jones. I mean, obviously, you guys know Alex Jones. Yes, right? yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, you know, been on the show. Yeah, people. People are constantly asking, you know, why isn't Alex dead yet? With you know, I mean, he's he's uncovering. Uh, the kind of things that Marie's talking about left and right, you know what I mean? He's he's put himself in the middle of all this, and you know one of the one of the ways you know I, I think to combat it is to be public, and and another thing is to you know if I could just tell Marie, you know, as hard as it is to try to just you know chill out and don't don't let you know try not to let them get you wound up so so tight about all this because they want you to self destruct. They want you to turn into like a paranoid shell of a person, and you know what Alex does is you know he really believes in the strength and numbers theory, and basically he's always talking about like look if someday they come out and they say I committed suicide you're going to know that it's a lie. I'm telling everybody right now that I'm never going to commit suicide, and I want everybody to know that about me as well. 
And, uh, you know, Alex is just so vocal and so powerful about it and so out there about it that he's created a situation where if the government, like, screws with him or they kill him or martyr him, then he's going to just become, like, ten times more famous and ten times more powerful than he is now in his death. And so they, they just kind of sit back and they just let him go crazy. So it's a tricky situation, you know, and that's, you know, one of the differences people ask me about the danger I put myself in. Well, you know, the difference between me and guys like Gary Webb or Celerino Castillo is that I'm not really in a position of, you know, I'm not a guy who's out here doing an investigation and naming names. I'm more of just, I'm, you know, I'm a filmmaker connecting the dots. I, I don't really, you know, I'm not the first guy to tell the story of Freeway Ricky Ross or any of these things. No, you don't have the the damning documentation locked in a in a, uh, yeah, you know, a safety I mean, deposit not, box. You know, they, they can come and take me away, but my film is already out. You know what I mean? They right. can tap my phones, which I know they were, because, you know, Ricky Ross was calling me from prison, and, you know, Alex Jones is calling me all the time. And, you know, I even had times where you hear weird sounds on the phone and I look out and the people are up there on the telephone pole. I've even taken pictures of them up there on the telephone pole. But I, I just kind of live my life as if, you know, you know, I'm not doing anything wrong and, uh, and they can listen to my phones. They can do all this stuff. They're not going to get anything. You know, everything that I know is in the film already. It's already out there. So this, they're not going to benefit by, by doing anything to me. And I'm, I'm not saying that's some, some sort of a, an insurance policy. But, you know, all I can say, Marie, is, uh, you know, if you have this public, if you have this knowledge, then, you know, go somewhere else with it and try to get as much of it out there as possible. And, um, you know, at the same time, realize that life is short. And if you, you know, allow them to turn yourself into a nervous wreck, then they've already won the game already. So, All right. Yes. You know, good luck to Marie. With yeah. that, let's go to the uh, phones again, and uh, we'll pick it up this time with Tony in Brampton. Tony, good morning. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Good morning, Richard. Enjoy your show. Thank you. Uh, I'd like to counteract uh, his claim that marijuana is a safe drug. Uh, I lived down in Southern California in the 60s and 70s. I even had a grow up in my backyard uh, in the city, if you can imagine that. Uh, I got hooked on marijuana in the late 60s and smoked it quite uh, a lot during the 70s uh, and eventually got uh, schizophrenia from it at the age of 32. Now, that's very rare to get it at that late date, but it is a psychologically addictive uh, chemical and it does change the chemistry in your brain. And it doubles the uh, incidence of uh, a person getting schizophrenia. Now, not everybody gets it, but, uh, you know, and then there are just recreational uh, drug users that can smoke it forever and no problem, but uh, it is not as safe as people make it out to be. All right, Tony, point taken, but is, uh, I mean, that, that, that's not really the central uh, core of the film that you know that marijuana is safe and that we should legalize it. It is that the the, the costs associated with this uh, uh, war against drugs. The fact that you have over a million non-violent uh, drug users right. okay. behind they, bars. They should decriminalize it. They should not legalize it. All right, uh, Kevin. Did you want to respond? Well, yeah. I mean, I, you know, well, first of all, my my brother was a schizophrenic, so I I actually know quite a bit. I, I grew up with schizophrenia in my family. I know a lot about it. So I 
I would debate with you that marijuana was the exact cause of your schizophrenia. I'm not, you know, I can't be sure. I don't know you that well. And and also to tell you that I don't know what all other chemicals maybe were going into your gardening back in the 60s and 70s. A lot has changed since then. But like he says, I mean, you know, people die from eating too much McDonald's. I mean, we, we live in a world right now where, you know, uh, you know, I, I think junk, junk food, you know, it, it causes a lot more illness and death than uh, drugs do. And so it's not a matter, I mean, it, this is just all a matter of people being free to do what they want. And thank God you didn't go to jail back in the 60s and 70s to add to your other problems. All right, Tony, thank you for that. Uh, let's say hello to John in, uh, let's go south of the border and say hello to John in Trenton, New Jersey. John, good morning. Hello, Welcome to the Conspiracy Show. Hello. Hi there. Yes, Richard, thank you for taking my call. Um, I've listened to you for some time now, and I think you've been very, you've run the show very well. Um, but this last woman who called, who, who found herself in uh, this predicament and being persecuted by the police, and it sounded like she was really between... Uh, uh, in in a hellhole there, and uh, I'm sure it's ten times worse when you don't have the money to protect or defend yourself. And you guys, I, I didn't think you guys offered her any sort of option or any sort of organization she could she could contact to make her life any easier. Well, you first know, of all, it's uh, it's a very first. Uh, John, understand? I mean, we're, we're, we're I, I certainly sympathize I mean, I with Marie's. You know, that wasn't. You know, she's calling in. She's providing a lot of information. And you guys are almost dismissing her. Well, no, listen. First of all, when you have someone come on the air like that and you have no way of knowing uh, right. what she's, you know, the veracity of her call, and I, I, I believe, uh, you know, I'll give her the benefit of the doubt, but right. if uh, this is a, a very, obviously, a long and involved story, and I can't, right. I, I could do a whole show with her probably, but I can't tonight. But if she, not, if she I, were to come on and, and, and mention a name, Right. Uh, then that would, you know, that could jeopardize the, the, the entire future of the program. So I have to tread lightly. I wanted, you know, I wanted to hear what she had to say. I think we got the, the gist that she is, as you say, living in a hellhole. And to, to be fair, Kevin, I think Kevin did offer her some some sagely advice that she's right. got. Right, you, know, you know, naming names is dangerous for anybody, whether it's anything. You know, if you. Oh, name I don't. I don't doubt or, that. But it's, you know, you offered her some nice advice to 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 relax and to calm down about these things and. But at the same time, I'm sure there was some some sort of organization you could have pointed her to or towards. An organization, uh, some sort well, of group uh, that deals with people caught in her her predicament. Well, the, I think Kevin's advice is 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 for her to try if she has this documentation, go somewhere with it. Perhaps you know to a to a, a journalist, someone maybe that she reads and she trusts. Uh, uh, what would you have suggested to her, John? Well, I would have said if I was somehow. In, involved in this, this was my mode of daily life. I'm sure I, I would know of people who were being caught in such situations, and I say, look, go speak to such and such a lawyer. Um, he's located in this area. Look him up. Um, they have groups that you can speak to if you're in such and such a situation. Well, I'm sorry, I I I, uh, I don't readily know of a, uh, a you know a, a, an organization and, that deals you're, with you're, you know whistleblowers. Yes, uh, would he know of something like that? No, no. I mean, it's it's it, I mean it's. It, for her, it's like a, her, she had a very long, complicated story. Like you said, I mean, it, I think right. it would have taken like hours to to to, to sort it all out. And um, I but it think wasn't, the main I mean, thing for her to do is it wasn't to, just to sort it out. It was just to point her in a direction to keep her sane in a place that you know. Well, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think what I was trying to tell her though is that she needed to find like a safe outlet to be able to get all of her information out and through some channel that she she could trust, like like he was saying, a journalist or somebody. 
but to go outside it's not like don't sit there and try to turn the you know if you're if you're trying to like bust somebody at a certain police department you don't go to that police department sitting there going look i've got this proof that you guys are criminals i mean you need to go outside of the loop and and try to find somebody else that's going to help you i mean she could you know maybe she could uh try to write a, uh, a you know a simple letter and try to like contact some American journalists or somebody outside of the loop that would do a story and shed some light on this thing. Uh, John in Trenton, uh, New Jersey. I, I I thank you for the call and I appreciate what you're saying. But you have to understand, you know, this is a delicate matter. When you put someone on the air like that, you have no way of knowing what they're saying is the truth. Again, give her the benefit of the doubt. If if what she's saying is true, then she's a hero. And uh, but it's a cautionary tale. This is a lonely road uh, to do something like she's doing. And uh, when you decide to take something like this on, you're putting everything at risk. And we wish her the best, and, and uh, you know, a, a prayer uh, would go out f- to her from me, certainly. Um, but, uh, I mean, this is, this is a, a, a obviously a dire situation. You're up against uh, a people with trillions of dollars at their disposal, uh, a law enforcement uh, at their disposal, in some cases corrupt judges at their disposal, uh, as I always like to say, all we have is the truth. So ultimately, they don't stand a chance. All yeah, right. I mean, and obviously, it's too late for her now. But you know, maybe a smarter route, in hindsight, and I know this doesn't do her any good now, would have been to have gathered that information and to pass it on to somebody like Alex Jones and to keep herself anonymous. All right, let's uh, pick it up on the other side with uh, Kevin Booth and American Drug War here on the Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Right now, today, there is so much violence today, not because people use drugs, but because they're illegal. That's why, you know, the people who benefit the most by all these laws, these are the drug cartels. They lobby to keep these laws in place because they can't exist without them. They're, you don't have the alcohol pones now because you don't have prohibition of alcohol. Prohibition is what is bad. Poking holes in the darkness. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To see the light, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. Ron Paul certainly has become a, a folk hero to a sizable uh, quarter of the population. And uh, he also is uh, featured in American Drug War, the... Uh, Filmmaker Kevin Booth joins me now as we discuss this 35-year and counting uh, war. Uh, we have we, he, Ron Paul mentions the the drug cartel, and um, what he doesn't mention is uh, uh, the banks uh, and how there were some estimates that uh, during the uh, the subprime crisis that if it were not for drug money and uh, certain banks laundering of drug money that have absolutely no working capital whatsoever. Uh, you touch upon the, 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 the role of the banks in, in, in all of this, do you not, uh, Kevin? Oh, yeah, I mean, you know, and, and go back to the classic movie Scarface, where, uh, you know, Tony Montana is having to, to wash the money through the, through the big Miami banks, and, um, you know, that was based on truth, and that's, that's been going on forever, and... and uh, yeah, there there are a lot of uh, Fortune 500 companies, I believe, that are 
injected by illegal drug money to basically keep their stock values up, to basically keep the banks flush, and, um, you know, on and on. It's, it's like, a, it's, you know, that drug money is like a steroid. It gives you the edge over the competition, for sure. And another interesting thing while we're on the topic of cartels in Mexico is that it's very interesting to note that Mexico is now basically decriminalized, if not legalized, small amounts of drug use because the cartel situation has just gone completely out of control there, and the government has lost control uh, over the streets, and the cartels pretty much are running the country, and this has all been created by the black market, and because of the black market, these cartels have more money, more manpower, more they can, and they can outgun the the police forces. And this is all because of prohibition, like Ron Paul just said. There, the uh, the new uh, uh, drug of choice on the streets is uh, is crystal meth. Uh, I don't know if there's been any equivalent of sort of Gary Webb's uh, look at uh, the connection between the CIA and cocaine, but I'm wondering whether there might also be a, a similar connection uh, between of the CIA and crystal meth. That I don't know. You know, it's, it's interesting, but um, you know, you do know though that through just various chemists, it just keeps getting better and better and better. You know, whether the government has anything to do or not with that, I'm not sure. I, um, it, it's it, it's real interesting to me, and something that I talk about a little bit off off your topic, real quick. But just how different drugs seem to like fall in with just different races, and it's all very fascinating. You know, crack, it's interesting when you go to Skid Row here, you know, in Los Angeles, we have one of the biggest homeless crises right here, 10 miles away from, um, you know, or just actually like probably a couple miles away from, you know, multi-million dollar mansions, is an area called Skid Row that looks probably just as bad as anything in Mexico City. And it's interesting when you go there, all these people are smoking crack, and you would think that poor people would rather be doing crystal meth because it's cheaper and it lasts longer, um, but they don't. And for some reason, crystal meth has become this uh, drug of choice of more like white rural um, America. But I, I kind of liken crystal meth more to the modern-day moonshine and that uh, you know crystal meth is basically the end result of what happens when you close down the borders. I mean, people that, you know, it's kind of like the poor man's cocaine, in other words. And, uh, and you know, this is, this is what you get when you cut off people's uh, ability to use naturally occurring drugs. People are going to just go and they're going to do whatever they can. All right, let's say hello to John in Thornhill, Ontario. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. John, you're on the line with Kevin Booth. Hi, Richard. Hi, Kevin. Um, hey. Hi. Uh, I was hoping uh, to help out the American listeners. Um, there's a guy in Texas. Uh, he's got his own uh, radio show on uh, 3215 shortwave, uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday nights. It's uh, Alfred Attisk. And he was pursued by the American government for selling uh, colloidal silver. Um, they were fining him $25,000 a day. And he ended up reading the drug law, and uh, I think he found something significant in there. He ended up finding out a few words uh, which state uh, that the uh, drug laws apply to, and here it is, man or other animals. Now, if you analyze that, the law applies to man, and man is being categorized as an animal. 
and he used that as a defense. And uh, the government spent six years going after him. He filed that defense, and guess what happened? The case was dropped, went away. I, it's just unbelievable to me. <clears throat> That's I'm interesting. So that one thing along those lines in, in the new film, uh, How We'd Won the West, that Alex Jones talks about is a, a U.N. consortium called Codex Alimentarius. Yes. Exactly. This is uh they're basically trying to make it to where you'll have to have a doctor's prescription to have colloidal silver, to have aloe vera, to have vitamins, vitamin fish, fish oil, any of these things and for them uh, allowing marijuana to be legalized would be a disaster. And they, you know, the giant pharmaceutical companies are realizing, you know, that and they're losing more and more business to just the mom and pop uh people, you know, uh, health, you know, people are trying to put out just health supplements, things that actually try to keep you healthy instead of just treating your illness that the pharmaceutical right. companies want to do. Well, they and, just want um, to keep you sick. Yeah, and so the UN, you know, I, I recommend people, you know, you can actually uh, Google Codex Alimentarius and um, and check this out. Well, this is, yeah, these, this, uh these, uh, the people behind the Codex are really the remnants of IG Farben, which was the the financial arm of the uh, the Nazi Party. Uh, that's no secret. I mean, they broke up RG Farben after the after the war, but those individual uh, pharmaceutical companies uh, still exist. And uh, Merck, uh, uh, I'm not telling tales out of school. This is all a matter of public record. They're the ones that are behind the codex. We have legislation pending up here in Canada uh, that I think is just waiting uh, Senate approval, which will it's a, a huge it's an omnibus bill. They are busy uh, trying to train enforcement officers right now. They're going to and, and canvassing all of the colleges across the country to get enforcement officers so that they can raid private residences. Under this, I've had a lawyer look at this bill. I mean, if you're giving your child blueberries, I mean, food is now a drug under this bill. If you're giving, you know, an oxy, uh, 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 food is medicine. If you're giving your child blueberries, you could conceivably be charged under this legislation. That's how bad it's getting. All right, let's go back to the phones and say hello to Dave in Hamilton. Dave, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. You're on the line with Kevin Booth, American Drug War. Hi, guys. How are you doing? Well, thank you. I've got some information I'd just like to pass on for uh, anybody that's a whistleblower that may be looking for some organizations that, uh, I don't know if they can offer so much protection, but at least it's like, uh, you know, strength in numbers. All right. I hope Marie's listening. Go ahead, Dave. Yeah, the one organization that's big, it's a global movement. In fact, Richard, you uh, tuned me into uh, Eleanor White, who's with this organization, uh, Freedom from Covert Harassment and Surveillance. Yes. FFCHS. They've got a lot of heavy hitters that are involved in that group. They've had Dr. John Hall that's been on uh, Coast to Coast, actually, uh, not too long ago, discussing uh, the issues. And, uh, like I said, they've got a lot of people involved with trying to push uh, things forward to have protection for whistleblowers. And the, another organization in Canada is uh, Canadians for Accountability. They have a lot of whistleblowers, well, not a lot, but they've had whistleblowers that have formed that group that try to uh, uh, get together to force issues. Dave, that's terrific information, and uh, thank you so much. Uh, again, I hope Marie's listening. Yeah, you're welcome. All right. All right, have a good night. Thank you. Um, Michael Rupert is... Um, Featured prominently in the film, I've I've had the pleasure of uh, talking to uh, Michael on the show on a number of occasions. A former LA narcotics officer. There's a, a really powerful moment in the film 
and we go we dial it back again to the uh, the revelations of Gary Webb and that the 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 CIA was responsible for bringing the the cocaine into the United States that was being converted into crack uh, where uh, Rupert confronts former CIA director John Deutsch at a meeting I mean this this w a series of articles from Webb was so powerful the CIA actually felt it necessary to come down to Watts to address the locals to explain no 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 we had no part in this and then there's the exchange between Michael Rupert calling out John Deutsch can you can you uh, give us a, uh, people a sense of how that exchange went Kevin yeah no it's a, an incredible thing that um, I think everybody needs to at least see that because it's you know it, it's it's real I mean and for for all this talk that still can sound conspiratorial when you see the footage of the actual guy from the CIA coming and confronting the people of Watts it's uh it really really brings it home but basically you know after the Gary Webb stories came out you know the people of Watts were um, you know outraged because most people you know, they had a sense. I mean, they were watching their whole community just fall apart, and they had a sense that there was something bigger than they knew of that was taking place that was allowing this to happen. It was how, you know, how could this be just so big and so organized, and, and, and you know, they, they knew it. And so when the Gary Webb stories came out, it really resonated with the locals. And um, when John Deutsch came to Locke High School, I think he came there anticipating that he was going to be able to just you know, walk in there and deny, 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 and little did he know that he was going to be um, met with, you know, thousands and thousands of angry, well-informed people, uh, including, you know, people that had first-hand knowledge of it. And so, um, you know, it, it's just a, it's an incredible sight to see it, you know. Now, the, um, one of the, we talked about one of the motives uh, here uh, for this war on drugs is to, to, to fill the prisons, especially the privately run uh, prisons. Uh, obviously, there's the profit motive. But is there something even more nefarious at work here? I mean, you, you, you mentioned how specific drugs have been tailored for specific community, uh, communities, crack cocaine uh, for, for, for blacks, uh, um, meth, crystal meth for perhaps uh, Hispanics. Uh, it's almost like a, you know, ethnic cleansing. Um, I mean, is that what this is about? Is is this a war against uh, well, all of us? We're we're the the enemy, the uh, the useless eaters, as Kissinger used to call us. Is that what this is really about? At the root of it, you know, I mean, I I believe so. I mean, I I really do. And you, you just you don't even have to look at the illegal drug trade to feel that way. Just look at the what's going on with pharmaceuticals. Um, just look at what's going on with legal drugs. Uh, to be able to feel that way, but I, I totally think that <clears throat> that this whole new world order agenda that's really been pushed through, you know, especially you know, accelerated since 9/11, would have um, never ever been possible for them without the drug war. The drug war, you know, created the situation of. Uh, you know, making Americans think that it's okay to have guys with black ski masks breaking into their neighbors' houses because, you know, because they're involved with drugs. So, they're, you know, it's a good thing that they're keeping us safe. And it's uh, allowed people to think that it's okay to, like, drug test children. And, and at the same time, you know, it's just so upside down while they're giving children 
things like you know, Ritalin and Adderall and all these other, and Prozac, you know, all the young kids that are on Prozac now. And so on, on many levels, I mean, I think when you look at the percentage of the population that are on antidepressants now, I mean, there, you know, there's just a huge amount of people in our society to me that are just zombies and, and they, they gotta, you know, for, for the globalist agenda, they just gotta love it. You know, um, they, you know, what else could be better for them? And so I think this, the, the drug war is, is just the perfect scam. It works, it works in so many directions all the way around that, you know, they, they don't ever want to see the end of this thing, and, and without it, they would, have never, they would have never been able to push all this other, other stuff, all this other garbage on us. Another great point, and there's so many um, mentioned in the film, is the, uh, the Council for a Drug-Free America. Uh, and, and, you know, these are the people that are behind the this is your drugs, these, this is your brain on drugs uh, commercials. Mm-hmm. The Council for a Drug-Free America, who's really behind that organization? Well, you know, it used to be uh, alcohol and tobacco companies until that became just too obvious. But now when you see it, it's a lot of it's, uh, medical insurance, uh, health, I mean, health insurance, uh, big oil companies, of course, all the pharmaceutical companies. And so, you know, basically it's alcohol, tobacco, pharmaceutical, probably, you know, uh, weapons, oil, you know, the whole industrial prison complex that basically wants to be able to draw this line in the sand and say, you know, all these things, you know, even though they kill people and do this and do this and this, it's legal. But these things over here, if you do them or touch them or all that, well, then, you know, you now belong to us. And so, um, you know, it's tricky because, you know, you know there's got to be a lot of well-meaning people that are involved with drug-free America and that, you know, don't have bad intentions, but... But it, 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 it uh, you know, it's like once again. I mean, that's why there there is so much gray area in here because you know not everybody is evil, but people get you know it's just like becoming a part of the Catholic Church right now. I mean, people just you know there's there's just so many layers to this thing with all the years that it's been going on and on. All right. Well, listen, Kevin. Um, again, we want to. Uh, let uh, listeners know that uh, both of your films, American Drug War and How We Won the West, are uh, going to be screened at the Review Cinema here in town, Toronto, on uh, Tuesday, April the 20th, 400 Roncesvalles Avenue, and they can get tickets at the door for $10 or order through Conspiracy Culture for $7, conspiracyculture.com. And uh, I'm imagining the doors will probably open up just after 6, and again, the first uh, film runs at 7 American Drug War, and then at 9.30, How Weed Won the West. And, and, and uh, again, just, just uh, the significance of that day is 420. That's April 20th. And uh, just to let, let all your listeners know that, that there will be uh, screenings of How Weed Won the West taking place in over 40 cities on that day, and including if there's anybody listening over the Internet here in Los Angeles, will be at Paramount Studios, and uh, that should be one hell of a party. And, uh, and if you're not either, if you're not in Toronto or and you're not in Southern California, then please um, go to sacredcow.com, sacredcow.com, or howweedwonthewest.com or americandrugwar.com, and you know find your way to one of the screenings. And if you can't make it to one of the screenings, then buy a DVD. If you can't buy a DVD, then go to Netflix. Um, but you know just do what you can to see these movies and please help spread them around more and more. 
All right, uh, uh, Kevin, uh, congratulations uh, on your work. Keep your head down, and uh, I hope we can speak again. Absolutely. I, I enjoyed coming on here. I'd love to do it anytime. Wonderful. Thank you. All right. All right, we'll uh, open up the lines, and uh, if you didn't get in on this discussion and like to comment, we'd love to hear from you. But if there's anything else you'd like to discuss of a conspiratorial or a paranormal nature, the line's available to you now at 416-360-0740 and 1-866-744-740. When, the Richard, or when Richard Serrett, yours truly, comes back on the other side here on The Conspiracy Show, AM 740. That's what I hate about the war on drugs. I'll be honest with you. It's what I can't stand is all day long we see those commercials. Here's your brain. Here's your brain on drugs. Just say no. Why do you think they call it dope? And then the next commercial is this Bud's for you. Come on, everybody. Let's be hypocritical bastards. It's okay to drink your drug. <laughs> we meant those other drugs. Those untaxed drugs. Those are the ones that are bad for you. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. We only come out at night. We only come out at night. The days are... Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak to Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. And if I'm not mistaken, that uh, toll free number is... uh Good from just about anywhere. And, of course, we are heard all the way from Thunder Bay down to the Carolinas and from Maine to Minnesota. Love to hear from our listeners in New York, Philadelphia, uh, New Jersey, Chicago, Washington, all parts in between. And, of course, my dear Canadian friends as well. We will uh, open up the lines to you uh, now till uh, 1 o'clock when we uh, turn down the lights and say goodnight. And, again, this is uh, one of those opportunities in the program they don't come around too often. Uh, often we have guests, pillar to, pillar to post, but uh, tonight we'll uh, take this time to turn the show over to you in uh, essence. It's just you, me, and the telephone. And if you'd like to discuss what you've heard in the previous 90-plus uh, minutes, American Drug War, would love to hear from you if you didn't get in on that conversation. Or if there's something else that uh, you've heard discussed on the show in the recent past and, again, didn't have an opportunity to respond, now is your chance. If there's something else going on uh, that you'd like to discuss, again, this is a show that deals with uh, conspiracies, cover-ups, uh, political intrigue or subterfuge, if you will. Uh, then the lines available to you. And also, of course, we discuss from time to time uh, paranormal phenomena, supernatural phenomena, and just things that are plain, weird, and unexplained. 416-360-0740 and one 740 4740 are the numbers. Now, we had Marie call in earlier during our segment with Kevin Booth on American Drug War, and Marie was a self-confessed whistleblower and wanted to uh, talk about her, really her harrowing uh, ordeal, 
having uh, tried to blow the whistle on some rather nefarious activities in the echelons of power here in Canada. And uh, someone has called in. This is a wonderful thing uh, about live talk radio. Uh, if I'm not able to assist or my guest isn't able to assist, we have people out there, wonderful listeners who uh, are um, up on this sort of information. And, and the advice to Marie from a caller is to look up FAIR, F-A-I-R, Federal Accountability Initiative Reform. And this uh, FAIR is an organization for whistleblowers. So Marie, if you're out there and you're listening... And uh, if you feel that you were cut off and given short shrift, I apologize, but I hope you understand also our predicament that uh, uh, at a certain point we have to move on and uh, it's a rather delicate thing to to talk about something that has been before the courts or is before the courts live on the air. In any event, FAIR, Federal Accountability Initiative Reform, look that uh, organization up and hopefully uh, they'll be able to offer you some uh, advice or some solace in any event. All right. Now, something that uh, I've been meaning to uh, to read to you. Uh, in fact, uh, an email uh, from a, a listener um, sort of reinforced that point. I've had a, a Paul Craig Roberts on my show in the past. Paul Craig Roberts is a whistleblower, to be sure, but he is not, uh, you know, someone crying in the wilderness. He is a highly placed individual. In fact, many consider him the uh, one of the principal architects of Reaganomics. Now, you may not agree or disagree, or you may agree or disagree with, the, with the, you know, Reagan's uh, sort of economic plan back in the early 80s, sort of the trickle-down uh, effect, etc. However, uh, he, Paul Craig Roberts was a highly placed individual within the Reagan administration. He was assistant secretary of the Treasury. And uh, I had him on the show uh, talking about... Uh, uh, 9-11 and other things. And, and for the record, Paul Craig Roberts, again, Reagan administration official, believes 9-11 was an inside job. Well, for years, Paul Craig Roberts has had a, a blog. He's been a very active blogger and a very powerful one. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, he announced that he was no longer going to be writing his blogs. Now, he's getting up there. He, I believe he's in his 70s. But essentially, he has just become beaten down. Here's a gentleman who's, uh, you know, writing about uh, or attempting to uh, dispense the truth as he sees it. And uh, despite uh, or warning us all of sort of the the encroachment of soft totalitarianism uh, really throughout the world, uh, certainly in the United States and here in Canada. Anyway, I wanted to to share this with you. This is his last blog, and I think it's such a a poignant piece that it deserves to be read. Again, this is Paul Craig Roberts. He starts off quoting George Orwell. During times of universal deceit, telling the truth becomes a revolutionary act. There was a time when the pen was mightier than the sword. That was a time when people believed in truth and regarded truth as an independent power and not as an auxiliary for government, class, race, ideological, personal, or financial interest. Today, Americans are ruled by propaganda. Americans have little regard for truth, little access to it, and little ability to recognize it. Truth is an unwelcome entity. It is disturbing. It is off limits. Those who speak it run the risk of being branded anti-American, anti-Semite, or 
conspiracy theorist. Truth is an inconvenience for government and for the interest groups whose campaign contributions control government. Truth is inconvenient for uh, prosecutors and who want convictions, not the discovery of innocence or guilt. Truth is inconvenient for ideologues. Today, many whose goal once was the discovery of truth are now paid handsomely to hide it. Free market economists are paid to sell offshoring to the American people. High productivity, high-value-added American jobs are denigrated as dirty, old industrial jobs. Relics from long ago, we are best shed of them. Their place has been taken by the new economy, a mythical economy that allegedly consists of high-tech, white-collar jobs in which Americans innovate and finance activities that occur offshore. All Americans need in order to participate in this new economy are finance degrees from Ivy League universities, and then they will work on Wall Street at million-dollar jobs. Economists who were once respectable took money to contribute to this myth of the new economy. And not all economists sell their souls for filthy lucre. Recently, we've had reports of medical doctors who for money have published in peer-reviewed journals concocted studies that hype this or that new medicine produced by pharmaceutical companies that paid for the studies. The Council of Europe is investigating Big Pharma's role in hyping a false swine flu epidemic in order to gain billions of dollars in sales of the vaccine. The media helped the U.S. military hype its recent Marja offensive in Afghanistan, describing Marja as a city of 80,000 under Taliban control. It turns out that Marja is not urban, but a collection of village farms. And there is the global warming scandal in which climate scientists, financed by Wall Street and corporations anxious to get their mitts on cap and trade, and by a UN agency anxious to redistribute income from rich to poor countries, concocted a doomsday scenario in order to create profit in pollution. Wherever one looks, truth has fallen to money. Wherever money is insufficient to bury the truth, ignorance, propaganda, and short memories finish the job. I remember when following CIA Director William Colby's testimony before the Church Committee in the mid-1970s, Presidents Gerald Ford and Ronald Reagan issued executive orders preventing the CIA and U.S. black op groups from assassinating foreign leaders. In 2010, the U.S. Congress was told by Dennis Blair the director of national intelligence, that the U.S. now assassinates its own citizens in addition to foreign leaders. When Blair told the House Intelligence Committee that U.S. citizens no longer needed to be arrested, charged, tried, and convicted of a capital crime, just murdered on suspicion alone of being a threat, he wasn't impeached. No investigation pursued. Nothing happened. There was no church committee. In the mid-1970s, the CIA got into trouble for plots to kill Castro. Today, it is American citizens who are on the hit list. Whatever objections there might be don't carry any weight. No one in government is in any trouble over the assassination of U.S. citizens by the U.S. government. As an economist, I am astonished that the American economics profession has no aware, awareness whatsoever 
that the U.S. economy has been destroyed by the offshoring of U.S. GDP to overseas countries. No U.S. corporations in pursuit of absolute advantage or lowest labor costs and maximum CEO performance bonuses have moved the production of goods and services marketed to Americans to China, India, and elsewhere abroad. When I read economists describe offshoring as free trade based on comparative advantage, I realize there is no intelligence or integrity in the American economics profession. Intelligence and integrity have been purchased by money. The transnational or global U.S. corporations pay multi-million dollar compensation packages to top managers who achieve these performance awards by replacing U.S. labor with foreign labor. While Washington worries about the Muslim threat, Wall Street, U.S. corporations, and free market shills destroy the U.S. economy and the prospect, prospects of tens of millions of Americans. Americans, or most of them, have proved to be putty in the hands of the police state. Americans have bought into the government's claim that security requires the suspension of civil liberties and accountable government. Astonishingly, Americans, or most of them, believe that civil liberties, such as habeas corpus and due process, protect terrorists and not themselves. Many also believe that the Constitution is a tired old document that prevents government from exercising the kind of police state powers necessary to keep Americans safe and free. Most Americans are unlikely to hear from anyone who would tell them any different. I was associate editor and columnist for the Wall Street Journal. I was Business Week's first outside columnist, a position I held for 15 years. I was columnist for a decade for Scripps Howard News Service, carried in 300 newspapers. I was a columnist for the Washington Times and for newspapers in France and Italy and for a magazine in Germany. I was a contributor to the New York Times and a regular feature in the L.A. Times. Today, I cannot publish in or appear on the American mainstream media. For the last six years, I've been banned from the mainstream media. My last column in the New York Times appeared in January 2004, co-authored with Democratic U.S. Senator Charles Schumer, representing New, representing New York. We addressed the offshoring of U.S. jobs. Our op-ed article produced a conference at the Brookings Institute in Washington and live coverage by C-SPAN. A debate was launched. No such thing could happen today. For years, I was a mainstream, a mainstay at the Washington Times, producing credibility for the Mooney newspaper as a Business Week columnist, for former Wall Street Journal editor, and former Assistant Secretary of the U.S. Treasury. But when I began uh, criticizing Bush's war of aggression, the order came down to Mary Lou Forbes to cancel my column. The American media does not serve the truth. It serves the government and the interest groups that empower the government. Americans' fate was sealed when the public and the anti-war movement bought the government's 9-11 conspiracy theory. The government's account of 9-11 is contradicted by much evidence. Nevertheless, this defining event of our time, which has launched the U.S. on an interminable wars of aggression and domestic police state, is a ta taboo topic for investigation in the media. It is pointless to complain of war and a police state when one accepts the premise upon which they are based. These trillion-dollar wars have created financing problems for Washington's deficits and threatened the U.S. dollar's role as world reserve chopping block, or sorry, U.S. world uh, currency. The wars and the pressure that the budget deficits put on the dollar's value have put Social Security and Medicare on the chopping block. The militarism of the United States and Wall Street and corporate greed will now run their course. As the pen is censored and its might extinguished, I am signing off. Paul Craig Roberts, again, the Assistant Secretary of the Treasury during Ronald Reagan's first term, Associate Editor of the Wall Street Journal, ending his blogs, another voice silenced. 
pity that. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. All right, time is tight. Let's work in our good buddy Nelson Thal into the proceedings. Hello, Nelson. How you doing, Richard? Great show. Richard, Thank you. Tell us about what you're going to be doing on May 1st. May first, the Saturday, May first. The freedom. Oh yes, You're be speaking at the, that. Uh, the yes. Thank you for that. That's the uh, the freedom, the Toronto Freedom Festival. And uh, uh, you're going to be there as well. We're going to be speaking at the iWeekly uh, Speakers Stage. Now, the Toronto Film Festival. That's this is the fourth annual, and it's the uh, the city's largest one day outdoor spring festival. It attracts over thirty thousand people at the Queens Park North, in the heart of downtown. And uh, this is a festival that's uh, designed to offer thoughtful, passionate groups uh, a forum to expose ideas to thousands of uh, um, progressive-thinking individuals. And uh, becoming, you know, by coming together in large numbers, positive attention has been drawn to individuals and groups seeking to preserve their constitutional rights and freedoms. And uh, again, uh, conspiracy culture. Our pa- our friend Patrick White uh, is going to be emceeing uh, an hour. Uh, on that day at the uh, the iWeekly speaker stage, which I believe is right, going to be right uh, up near Queen's Park, the Queen's Park building in front of the main stage. And this is, uh, they, they get huge uh, musical acts there. MJ, uh, uh, I'm sorry, the, the, one of the singers from Cypress Hill. I'm not, I uh, uh, can't think of his name, Muggs. Muggs, is, he's going to be there. And, and Nelson, you, you and I will be speaking there. Yeah, that guy, is that, when you say Cypress Hill, is that that group that, Saying uh, crazy uh, something in the brain. Now I'm see. Now I'm showing my age because is that the same group. Insane in the insane membrane. Insane in the brain. Insane in the membrane. Yes. Insane in the membrane. Is yeah. that the same group? Apparently, my uh, my my producer Dan Ellison is telling me yes. Oh well, that and they're going to be there. I'd like to talk to them. That would be interesting. Well, one of the the principals from the group. Yeah. Oh well. So what are you going to be talking about? I think I'm going to talk about. Um, um, well, I I just. You know, finished reading the uh, the final blog from Paul Craig Roberts and uh, how how uh, how difficult it is to uh, to sort of penetrate the firewall and 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 uh, and, and get information uh, to the uh, out to the public and and uh, I think that's going to be the focus of my speech. Uh, in other words, the, the, there's 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 really no free speech in the country. The inc- they say yeah. there is. Is that basically what you're saying? The inexorable march of soft totalitarianism in North America. I mean, it's very sophisticated now, but it's 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 totalitarianism nonetheless. Yeah. Now it parades around in an Armani suit and uh, and so forth, but it's still thuggery. How about you, Nelson? What are you going to talk about? Um, I think I want to go into a little bit about what I sort of my bailiwick is, to use John, our friend John Oakley's old term. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to go back to the JFK conspiracy because it seems like everything that pops up today is connected to that event through different connections. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, it's sort of the and, template, and, and obviously, you know, some of the people that were involved in that uh, were certainly around for 9/11. So you have to connect the dots. And Hillary Clinton covered it up with the Watergate hearing, covered up Bush's involvement, and we have her today. She's here thanks to her cover-up of the J- of Bush in the JFK 75 file sealed away. So that's what I'm going to talk about. But listen, I hear you got to go. Thanks for all the work you do. It's much appreciated. Just keep it up. All right, Nelson Thal. You can hear him Thursday nights, uh, cloakanddagger.ca. All right, thanks, Dan Ellison. I'm late, uh, so we'll uh, see you next Sunday talking about 
The fix is in. Showbiz and the corruption of professional sports. See you then. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.